So at the top, of course, our series is Rediscovering and Restoring the Bible as the Word of God is our emphasis. We're on emphasis five, thank you, of our series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. And um, emphasis five, all the emphasis are rotating up here. Hopefully you know that by now. And uh, during emphasis five, we're trying to look at uh, the very... Uh, the, uh, what, what began in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Evil, or Garden of Evil, Garden of Eden, <laughs> where, where uh, evil was introduced to the human race, uh, the Garden of Evil. <laughs> no, no, that's my garden. Okay, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, Uh, again, uh, in the Garden of Eden, the first uh, challenge that man faced was the questioning of God's word, God's uh, authority. Uh, the, the ultimate start of things was a question of epistemology. Who should Adam trust, the beast uh, in the person of the serpent or the creator God who was transcendent outside and above nature and had created nature? Uh, the omniscient one, uh, who is holy and perfect in his motives, or uh, the crafty serpent, who was uh, motivated by all sorts of evil wickedness. And so, um, fundamentally, life's first and most important challenge is the, the, um, the attempts to reduce the comprehensiveness of God's work. That's what we're all we're up against. And, you know, we talk a lot in this church about the fundamentalist versus modernist controversy that arose in the mid-1800s and how that has shaped uh, two major uh, Protestant sections of the church, the liberal Protestants who tend to be uh, follow the mindsets and the ideas and paradigms of thinking about God and the Bible that the, that the Sadducees followed, uh, and the conservative Christians who tend to follow the the mindsets and and so forth that the uh, that the Pharisees followed, and both of them didn't like Jesus. Uh, and I have often said, and I believe this to be true, that if Jesus Himself came to most of our churches today, they wouldn't like Him. So, uh, again, this whole series that we're, uh, you know, this part five, emphasis five, we're going to look at uh, the various things that have reduced Scripture over the, over the centuries, or especially in, in the last century and a half, uh, from, uh, from a comprehensive uh, approach. And so, but uh, that's, you might say... Um, that that it, it, we're going to on the on the uh, negative side of things coming up, we're going to identify and eliminate uh, contemporary reductionist theology. But on the positive side, we're pursuing the restoration uh, uh, and integration of a comprehensive hermeneutical approach. So we're on that part of it at this point, and uh, we we looked at. Um, 
the importance of, of the sum of God's word. We looked at um, what Jesus had to say about the whole scripture. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the infallible and effectual living word of the living God. And uh, last week, we began a very brief introductory survey of the Pentateuch with focus on Genesis, which is what we're going to continue today. So if you look at uh, Roman numeral 7 on your outline, uh, notice that um, there are numerous names for the Pentateuch. Some of them are listed there. We gave you a few more than that last week. Uh, and we're, and we're, in addition to the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We looked at the other three major uh, sections of Scripture in terms of what they are. All right. Now, I forgot to mention at the top, there's always a few Scriptures that are introductory to the whole series, and those change week to week because there's about 40 or 50 major Scriptures that that this uh, series is based on, and I want you to be studying those, thinking about those. You know, it's, uh, it was pointed out to me that some people don't take the outlines home, and they lit, and uh, if you're not taking these, and if you're not keeping them in a in a three ring notebook or a folder, I, you frank, frankly, that's foolishness, and uh, because you should review them, the Bible says to to give uh, double honor to, to the elders who rule well, especially those who work hard at the preaching and teaching. And I've spent 45 years preparing this stuff so that, it, that uh, I can help you understand God and his word better. That's my job. That's God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to the body of Christ. They're Christ's gift to you. And, uh, you know, we happen to be blessed with... Uh, a number of good teachers in our church. Uh, probably uh, there's one, Catherine, who's probably better than me, but uh, <laughs> she's uh, very, very knowledgeable. Uh, Catherine is the type of person you have to uh, sit down with and draw her out, but uh, she's loaded for bear. And uh, if you uh, get a chance to ask Catherine about the scriptures and theology and stuff, she, she's uh, quite amazing in that regard. And um, I, I've learned a lot of things from Catherine over the years and continue to do so. Uh, we, we had an interesting discussion about Scripture uh, yesterday. And, and um, you know, last week we included uh, a list of four of Catherine's uh, favorite books on Genesis, although the last one is actually a survey of the Old Testament, uh, starting with Genesis. And if you notice, some of those books were by Peter Lightheart and James Jordan. And I would highly recommend that you read a, a dozen or so of their books just to get started. Um, all right, so 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy to be diligent to present him, uh, himself approved to God uh, that Timothy should be a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed because he rightly divides the word of truth, which is the New King James Version. And the King James also uh, uses rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, the New American Standard translates that accurately handled, handling. The problem with it is the word does mean to cut. 
And so I gave some other translations, rightly handling is the ESV and RSV. Correctly handling is mounts, if you know bounces in or translation and the, why that's such a great tool. There's a new translation that is not catching on very much, which is almost a little surprising because it's a literal equivalence translation that's really good called the Disciples Living New Testament, or Disciples Literal New Testament, my bad. And um, the Disciples uh, Literal New Testament translates that cutting straight, and the New Living Translation uh, translates it correctly explains. Now, uh, it, it's good to know a little bit about the different kinds of translations. So in there, um, the only one in that list that's what's called a dynamic equivalence translation is the New Living Translation, which um, the, the purpose of the New Living Translation was to try to simplify the English as much as possible so that people who are a little bit challenged in their reading skills and vocabulary skills can understand it. Um, I have a good friend who's an inner-city pastor, uh, and uh, uh, pastors in a very, very rough neighborhood known for its drugs and, and all sorts of uh, its crime and so forth, and, he, and uh, they use the New Living Translation because so many of their constituents are challenged in their vocabulary and reading skills. Uh, and it's, it, as, it, as dynamic equivalences go, it's a good one. Um, my favorite dynamic equivalence is the New Living Translation. I mean, the New, not, I just, the new English Translation. Uh, I didn't offer that one because it was the same as some of the others. So, um, in any case, the whole concept that we're dealing with here is that the King James and the New King James using the words rightly dividing the word of truth, many people have correctly pointed out that what part of the phenomena of the conservative side of Protestant Christianity is a, is a mindset that we'll be looking at later when we look at all the theologies that have undermined the, the comprehensiveness of the scriptures when we get to looking at an idea called dispensationalism. Well, what you'll see is that dispensationalism stresses the discontinuity between different parts of Scripture instead of the continuity. And because Galatians 3 tells us that once a covenant is ratified, you cannot alter or make changes to it, uh, what we, you need to understand is the Bible is a progressive revelation of God done in approximately eight covenants. The first covenant is mentioned in Hebrews 13.20, and it's called the Eternal Covenant. Uh, the second is called the Adamic Covenant, or the Dominion Covenant, or the Creation Covenant. Uh, starts in Genesis 1 and so forth. We'll be looking at all eight of the covenants uh, as part of this se section on understanding Scripture. Because you have to understand uh, that all covenants have about a dozen elements in that they always have. And all covenants um, uh, contain those, and as God unfolded his eternal purpose, which he set from the beginning, uh, God is known for his eternal decree. That is, he has a predestined, foreknown purpose 
that he's working toward the summing up of all things in the universe in Christ. And as he works toward that, he takes each step by fulfilling, revealing, and, and inaugurating, and then fulfilling a covenant. And part of the message of the Bible is that God's covenants, uh, the eternal covenant, is made between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, one, uh, the three persons of the one triune God. And so that covenant has never had any uh, covenant breakers or, or uh, so forth. But all the other covenants, God has made those covenants with, with human beings who are innately covenant breakers. And so uh, God so worked that eventually the new covenant, God not only makes the covenant, but he overcomes that we're covenant breakers, and he causes us to become covenantly faithful. Obedient disciples. That's why, uh, you know, one of the misunderstandings of faith is that it's just intellectual assent to certain ideas but both in Romans 1 and Romans 15, Paul uses the phrase, the obedience of faith. James tells us that faith without works is dead. That is, it's, uh, it has no life, no effectiveness, and so forth. So, um, you know, um, so last week we began in, in Genesis, and if you look at point C at the bottom of the outline, uh, we listed last week in some detail seven reasons that both Genesis and the Pentateuch are foundational to all scriptural understanding. In other words, you can't understand what you're reading in Matthew unless you understand it through, through Genesis. You can't understand what you're reading in Romans if you don't understand Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and so forth. So there's seven statements there that I'm not going to take the time to, um, to review, but what I did, uh, partly because I tried to spend less time on the outline reviewing, is I made the statements a little more succinct this week, and I th as I considered them and compared them to the longer version last week, uh, it became clear to me that some of us We'll actually get more out of them if we review the succinct version. Uh, so I would encourage you to reread the succinct uh, versions. Um, uh, like number seven, all major themes of the Bible have their fountainhead in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There's not a theme of the Bible that's not touched upon in the first three chapters of Genesis. None. All themes of the Bible start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. All themes of the Bible are further developed in the rest of Genesis. And all themes of the Bible are even further developed in the, in the Pentateuch. And then in the other historical books and the wisdom literature, the prophets, and finally uh, they're revealed in, in, uh, in full and total in the New Testament. So uh, I wish I had more time to review that. If uh, that's something that if we had like uh, the format, we used to have a right state where we had uh, a two hour or so discussion about Bible things. I'd, I'd like to do more with that. Now, flipping over today, um, we're going to look at some more 
uh, introductory surveys uh, of things regarding the Pentateuch, but especially, uh, especially Genesis. Now, what I'm going to do is skip D and come back to it and go to E, because uh, that way I, I'm not going to really get to E, so I just want to equip you to do E on your own. Genesis is divided into 10 major sections. And all of those sections start with, these are the generations of. Now, uh, unfortunately, the New American Standard Bible, which is often one of the very best English translations available, starts with, these are the records of, or the accounts of. And that uh, misses the point uh, fairly badly. Because Genesis, this is a perfect book and a perfect thing to be studying today on Father's Day because Genesis is about fathers and sons. And so uh, God, the very first record is the record of God's creating the heavens and the earth. And when he did, God the Father created a son, Adam. And Adam... Uh, is, a, is the prototypical human being. Uh, and God related to Adam like a son. And, that, and the Bible, therefore, calls him the first Adam and calls, later calls God's eternally begotten son, Jesus Christ, the second or final Adam. And what Jesus does is he restores everything that Adam lost. Both of them are created without sin. Only two human beings ever, well, Eve, three, three human beings have been created without a sin nature. You won't know what that's like until you go to be in heaven. We can think about it, we can worship, we can touch the throne of God, we can sense his holiness, we can kind of look at it as if looking at a distant land and uh, wondering what it is going to be like uh, to not wrestle with our sin. Won't that be a great day? <laughs> you know? Uh, so, um, so, you know, in, the, in uh, modern psychology and so forth, there's always a, question, a major question called nurture or nature. Is it, is it uh, environment or heredity? The Pharisees were environmentalists. They were, you don't smoke, you don't choose, and you don't hang around with the people who do. Like they were, environmentalists are always uh, afraid of the, uh, to be in, around the wrong kind of people in the wrong kinds of places. And of course, there's some wisdom in being in a Christian community and so forth, and, uh, you know, it's not, you know, Jesus sent disciples out in twos. It's not, uh, if you're going to go to certain kinds of wedding receptions or parties, you might want to take someone from the church with you as an accountability partner. And sometimes it's a mistake, uh, you know, not to be careful of your environment. But primarily, our root problem has to do with our heredity, we were created in the image of God, and that image, every aspect of it, has been marred by this power called sin. And sin is an impersonal 
power. It's a power. It's, it is, it's as in, uh, real as, as gravity. Many um, persons under the influence of LSD or other types of uh, drugs have thought they could fly off the uh, top of a skyscraper or whatever, only to find out they couldn't, <laughs> which they might have known had they been more sober. The truth is, sin is a real power, and it's just as real as any of the laws of, of thermodynamics or physics, so forth. It's a spiritual law. In every part of our being, our conscience, uh, our, our mental processes, our emotions, our desires, every part of our being has been, uh, has been impacted by sin. And when, uh, the, by, the, when the theologians talk about the idea called total depravity, they don't mean that any person is perfectly evil. No one is. Uh, some, somewhere deep down, uh, Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler were not perfectly evil because no one's perfect. Uh, however, uh, however, every aspect of our being has been twisted and corrupted so that the ultimate decision uh, is whether you're going to trust God's thinking or your own. To be a Christian is to renounce your own ways. So when you go through Genesis, consider I've, I've taken time to underline some of the most important names uh, there so that as you go through Genesis, understand that each of these names is the beginning of a nation, a movement, something that, that continues on throughout the Bible. Now, the Bible is God's view of history. All histories select things by themes and criteria. When you watch the news, they've selected what they consider to be news by their worldview and the religion they're trying to cram down your throat. God, his view of history, is God has always desired a people for his own possession that would accurately represent him and manifest and reveal his glory to the rest of the creation. That's what God is ultimately after. So the Bible doesn't record everything in history as equally important. It's the, it centers on the, pro, the progressive revelation of Jesus Christ through God having a people for his own possession and so when he gave the Israelites the law, Romans 10.4 tells us that Christ is the telos, the telos of the law that is the end. He's the goal of the law. I've fallen short of the goal of the law every day of my 64 years. But Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the law. Now, I can already tell we're going to need another week on this because uh, I'm almost out of time and I haven't talked about the uh, 10 major biblical things. So let's go. So anyway, hopefully that equips you uh, to, to, to read Genesis. For one per, what you should focus on 
is that Genesis is about fathers and sons. It's about the generation of, it's about families that become nations. In, the, in, when, in Abraham, who's uh, meant, uh, talked about in Genesis uh, 12 and so forth, um, and these are the generations of Terah, the, the father of Abraham, starts in Genesis 11 toward the end, uh, and, that, and it brings in who, and Lot. Lot and Abraham are the, uh, the federal heads of, of two of the most important nations that have ever existed in the earth. Abraham, in particular, is the father of Isaac, who's the father of Jacob, and Jacob is renamed by God Israel. And the Old Testament is the history of God calling out of darkness and sanctifying and, and putting his covenant and his law in the people of Israel. They come through the seed of Isaac. And part of the Bible story is those who were supposed to represent God themselves fell and needed a redeemer. And so that's talked about in Romans 1, 2, and 3, for instance. All right, now, um, let's, let's at least introduce some of these 10 major themes. Again, they all arise in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. The, if there's any scriptures that you should read 100 times, it would be the first three chapters of Genesis. Everything in the Bible is based on them. And everything is further developed in the rest of the Pentateuch and then further developed in the rest of the Old Testament and then further developed, finally, in the New Testament. First is that God is an eternal creator. He's outside and above time. Because he's creator, he therefore has the right to be master. Now, in Genesis 1.1, it says, NRK, in the Septuagint version, the same as it does in John 1.1. John 1.1, NRK, and Halagos, and Kyalagos, and Prostan Theon, means in the beginning. And the word RK, we get archaic from. And, it's, and it means the first principle. Something had to be first. And in the Bible, it's very clearly revealed that someone was eternal. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in the beginning. They had no beginning, so they, they were actually uh, preexistent eternally before they created time, the three persons of the Trinity. Before God created time, he is, he was, he, I am. That's why he says to Moses in Exodus 3.14, when Moses say, who will I send him? He says the tetragrammaton Y-H-W-H, um, you know, what some people pronounce Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever. It was a name so holy to the Israelites that they never used it. They felt like the commandment that you cannot use the Lord name of the Lord I got in vain. It doesn't mean that when you hit your 
uh, finger with a hammer when you're remodeling Nathan's bathroom or something, that you, uh, that you, you know, say GD or JC or something. Of course, we shouldn't do that. But that's actually kind of a subset. That's the leaf of the tree. That's the fruit of the tree, the root of which is dishonoring God in our hearts. And the Israelites thought inevitably, if we use that that most holy name of God, there's many names of God, El Adonai, the, the God Almighty, and so forth. But if we use that name of God, there's no way we can use it in a worthy enough name matter. That's why Matthew, in, in writing to reach the Jews, God's covenant lawsuit against Israel, that they had... Uh, rejected their their husband, their master, their father over and over and over again, and God is done with Israel. He's going to take the kingdom from them and give it to a nation that produces the fruit of it. In that whole letter, uh, or that whole epistle, that whole gospel, I'll get it straight yet, in the entire book, Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God out of respect for the Jewish tradition. And because that's his target audience, he's trying to say, uh, you are covenant breakers and God is really ticked. That's why he's about to destroy Jerusalem, which, of course, was fulfilled to the T in 67 to 70 AD. And you can read all about the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthews 23, 24, and 25. Uh, there's a great book uh, that introduces that idea called uh, An Eschatology of Victory. That has nothing to do, like modern evangelicals twisted, to do with the end times or any of that nonsense. So, uh, um, so we're going to probably just stop with eternal creator, and we're probably going to uh, just do a whole message on um, on these major biblical themes. I'll be I'll be lucky in in a forty five minute message if I could introduce each of them. I could do a message on each one of them. And we could turn that into a 10-part series, which I hope not to do. But in terms of, uh, an, of eternal creator, one of the things I want you to consider is that God is therefore both the source of ontology and teleology. Now, what, like, uh, you know, if you're a modern evangelical, you'll be like, I hate big words, and I hate churches that want to read books and study. I just need my own simple, uneducated ways of interpreting the Bible that, that, you know, like, that I sense are right and good. But uh, ontology is just uh, the idea of the source in the meaning of existence or being. So you don't even know who you are, why you're here, or, or anything else about anything apart from God's word, apart from God himself revealing it to you. He's the source of our existence. He's the meaning of our existence. He's the purpose for what you breathe. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Your, your atoms don't disintegrate and you cease to be because God is ontological. He is the source of being. 
And as we already pointed out, Jesus is the telos of the law. He's the Teleology has to do with what is the purpose of something. And you were created for a purpose. John 15, 16, Jesus speaking to the disciples said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And he didn't choose us for no reason. The ultimate uh, issue of life is apart from Christ, all people experience boredom because boredom is God's gift to let you know you're not found yet. If you come to know the Lord, you will never struggle with boredom ever again because your life is filled with so much purpose that what you'll always struggle with is being disciplined enough to make, it, to make steps, proper steps toward the purpose. Boredom is actually like a barometer. Uh, it's a measuring instrument. It helps us understand that we're not founded in Christ. When you really understand that he chose you and appointed you to bear fruit and that your fruit should be eternal and you begin to pursue that with all of your being and you sanctify everything you do to that interest, if you, you know, look at your entertainment and say, is this causing me to bear fruit and fruit that remains? Are my relationships causing me to grow in the, my knowledge of God and bear fruit and, and, have, and have that? Are the hobbies I have, are the games I play, are, are the, is the vocation I'm pursuing, is, is it according to the call and purpose of God in my life? And everything that's not according to that needs to be abandoned for a total pursuit of the totality of God. Now, that's just a, uh, a partial introduction to point one. So hopefully I'll get into that more next week. So it looks like emphasis 5, D, B is going to have a C, D, and E. And, uh, but it's worth it. So... Uh,